0: Lily Baltrip is a good bus driver. In fact, according to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, the Houston School District nominated her for a safe driving award. Her colleagues even trusted her to drive a busload of them to the awards ceremony for safe drivers. Unfortunately, on the way to the ceremony, Lily turned a corner a little too sharply and flipped the bus over, sending herself and 16 others to the hospital for minor emergency treatment. The great ironies of life, right? Did Lily, accident-free for the whole year, get her award anyway? No. She didn't get her safe driving award because award committees don't operate on the principle of grace. Grace. Her accident negated her award. How fortunate are we that our God is a God of grace. That our record that is so full of blotches and sins and selfishness, but our final reward doesn't depend on our performance, but on God's grace. And know oh, how we know that, right? And how we count on that. But oh, how the majority of the people of Israel in Paul's day, and yes, yes, so many even in our day, have rejected God's grace to instead depend upon their performance. As Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 so wonderfully and clearly says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. It's not a result of your performance. So that no one can boast. Today we're going to see at the end of Romans chapter 10, Israel's response to God's grace. And then at the beginning of chapter 11, God's response to Israel's rejection of his grace. So please turn in your Bibles with me too. Romans chapter ten. Romans chapter ten and follow along as I start reading at verse eighteen. The scripture says, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and the world words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But if Israel, he says, all day long, I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you know that uh, do you not know what the Bible, what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Father, now we come before you, having read your scriptures that your Holy Spirit provided for us, inerrant, infallible. We come before you now asking you to Take this, your word, and teach us, and challenge us, and change us, as we humble ourselves to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think it'd be helpful to quickly summarize the flow of Paul's thinking in Romans chapter 10 before we get into our passage starting at verse 18. So let's remember the outline. First was their choice, and Romans 10, 1 through 4, then their opportunity that we saw last week in Romans ten five through 17, and now their response in Romans 10, 18 to 21. We saw their choice. They chose ignorance when the true knowledge of God's righteousness was right before them to know. They chose to seek and establish their own self-righteous system of works-based righteousness, and they willfully chose to not submit to God's righteousness. They looked to the Old Testament law, to the outward obedience to the law, as earning their salvation, earning their standing with God, as it taught us there in those first few verses of Romans 10. Israel pursued God, as Romans 9.32 says, not by faith, but as if... They were based on works. They worshiped their law and rejected their Savior. But Romans 10, 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ puts an end to the vain pursuit of self-righteousness and thinking that one standing with God can be earned as if it was based on works. Because that can't be done. That's impossible. See, the reality is that Jesus himself is the end of self-righteous, earn it salvation because Jesus is the foundation of faith-based, grace-based salvation. Well, then we saw their opportunities in verses 5 through 8. Paul points out using the Old Testament that it has always been teaching all along that righteousness is impossible to be earned based on keeping the law, but that righteousness has always been given, not earned, received, not deserved. Then in verses 9 through 13 Paul shows again, as he has over and over again in Romans, that salvation has always been and always will be by grace through faith. It's God's work from first to last. He saves us. We but respond to his grace. Then in verses 14 through 17, Paul talked about their opportunity to respond to God through those who were sent to proclaim the good news prophet after prophet in the Old Testament, and then John the Baptist, and then culminating with Jesus Christ, all came preaching repentance to the people of Israel, only to be scorned and rejected. As Romans ten sixteen says, quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? But perhaps, maybe, there's still room for excuse, right? As verse 18 says, but I ask, have they not heard? Well, there's no excuse there. It says, indeed, they have. Or as one translation has put it, but I ask, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? Yes, they have. They have had all the opportunities available from the previous verses and so much more as Paul listed at the beginning of chapter 9. The voice of salvation has gone out. The opportunity to hear was there, but yet hearing, they did not hear. Remember this quote, the fact that Israel was out of step was due to their failure to believe, not God's failure to make it clear. God had not failed them, they had failed their Messiah. They refused to believe, even with all the warnings and opportunities they heard, but they refused to hear. As Isaiah 6, 9 says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. That was Israel, willfully ignorant of God's righteousness and stubbornly rebelling against God's grace. They refuse to understand. But then God, then Paul gives these two quotes from uh, the Old Testament at the end of chapter 10 to show that somebody has heard, somebody has listened. Oh, Israel has rejected their Messiah, but the Gentiles will hear and they will come. The great irony is that this Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one that they had been waiting for and longing for and hoped for, He came to his own, and his own received him not. But to those who weren't his own, this Jewish Messiah has become their Messiah. To those who were not a nation, to those who were not seeking him, to them, to us. Jesus has become our Christ. Jesus has become our Messiah, our anointed one, our salvation. But of Israel, God says, all day long I've held out my hand to a disobedient, to an obstinate, to a contrary, to a rebellious people. Oh, how patient our God is. Oh, how enduring our God is. Oh, how, how kind our God is. In the face of such willful rejection, what does God do? All day long, he holds out his hands to his people. This reminds us of those words that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing What was their response to God's opportunity of salvation? Rejection. Rejection of Christ. Rejection of their Messiah. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Jesus illustrated the truth of Israel's rejection with a parable that he told in Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 through 34. The scripture says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and, and leased it to the tenants. And then he went into another country, and when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another and again sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his own son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was God's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people producing its fruits and the one on whom falls this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. All day long, God has had his hands open to them over and over again, opportunity after opportunity, profit after profit, law after law, sacrifice after sacrifice, all these opportunities for them to understand God's grace culminating in sending his only son to them, his beloved son, whom they rejected and killed. They stumbled over the stumbling stone and it crushed them, refusing to submit to him. Clinging to their own self-righteous religious works, they rejected his grace. They rejected his love. They rejected God's plan to their everlasting peril. The fault doesn't lie with God, but with their rejection of Christ. The fault doesn't lie with the gospel, but with their rejection of the gospel. Beloved, that is happening all around us today. In the world, all around us, people rejecting God's way of salvation. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And they're replacing it with their own way. People saying, I don't don't need your son. I don't need your grace. I can earn it my own way. I can take my own path. Could that be us? that be you? Could it be that you're trusting in your own works and your own deeds and your own approved list? Are you stumbling over the stumbling stone of Christ? Or are you standing on the rock of your salvation? Well, their response to God's grace was rejection so the next question naturally follows. What is God's response to their rejection of him? Has God rejected his people? Think about it now, right? The logical conclusion of their rejecting his son would be to reject them. The rightful response would be to be done with them. But Romans 11.1 1 answers the question in the most powerfully way possible. By no means. God forbid. Absolutely not. It's impossible. It is unthinkable. God has not rejected his people. How amazing is that? How kind is our God? As the Bible says over and over again, but you, O Lord, a right, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God has not rejected his people. And Paul proves that God has not rejected his people by offering four proofs. And the first was himself. There in the rest of verse 1. For I myself... I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul himself stands as a great example of God's continued grace to the people of Israel. Listen how Paul describes himself in 1 Timothy 1 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy. For this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul knew the depth of his sin, and he knew even greater the depth of God's mercy. He, the great persecutor of the church, became the great proclaimer of the gospel, became the great proclaimer of God's grace, the great portrait of grace. God had not withheld his mercy or his grace from his people. No, Paul stands as a display of God's perfect patience, as an example of God's amazing grace, of God's way of salvation. Isn't this the essence of our own hearts' cries, believers? as we know the own depth of our own sin, as we know the greater depth of God's mercy and love, don't we too want to be an example to others of God's saving grace? Don't we too want people to see Christ in us so that they could come to know Him? Our lives are supposed to display Christ's salvation as an example to those who would believe. Perhaps today you need to get back in touch with the depth of your sin so that you can get back in touch with the greater depth of God's mercy and grace and love so that others can see Christ in you, His salvation, His love, His grace. The first proof is Paul. The second proof that God has not rejected His people is in the beginning of verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You see, God had made an enduring promise to his people. God always keeps his promises. Despite Israel being disobedient and obstinate, the scripture is replete with God's promises to never forsake his chosen people. 1 Samuel 12, says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Psalm 89, 30 and following says, If the children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with a rod and with their iniquity with stripes. But... I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness. In the skies, we could go on and on throughout scriptures through the Old Testament and New Testament because God's covenant promises to Israel they were never and can never be completely cast aside. But that has nothing to do with them. Has nothing to do with them. It has only to do with God's choice. These are the people. God foreknew. Remember, foreknow means so much more than just to know ahead of time. But it carries with it the idea of intimacy, the idea of relationship, the idea of choice. Amos 3.2 illustrates this truth very well. God says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Obviously, God knows all the nations and all the peoples of the earth. But with Israel, it's different. He knows them with intimacy. He knows them with relationship, with covenant. He's Yahweh, the covenant God. He knows them with his choice. As Moses says in Deuteronomy 7, 6-8, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. As we'll see later in verse five, they were chosen by grace. Election is always by grace. God had not rejected his people whom he foreknew, whom he chose, whom he elected. The next proof Paul gives is the account of Elijah and the remnant of grace. Elijah in 1 Kings 18 confronts those false prophets of Baal and that great account on Mark Carmel. If you know the story, it's an amazing story. They kind of have a burnt offering contest, right? The 450 prophets of Baal against Elijah. They both build an altar, offer a sacrifice, but provide no fire. Their God would have to provide the fire, well after hours and hours and hours of crying out the four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal, even cutting themselves, letting blood as an offering. Verse twenty nine says in first Kings eighteen, There was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention, no fire. Elijah builds his altar, puts a sacrifice on it, then douses it with water three times so that water is everywhere. Then verse 36 and following says, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones And the dust. And licked up the water that was in the trenches. A simple prayer. And the fire of the Lord fell. God won a great victory that day. As verse 39 says. And all the people saw it. And they fell on their face and said. The Lord he is God. Yahweh is God. And all the prophets of Baal were killed. And then the rain returned after over a three-year drought. But as 1 Kings 19 begins, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel are not happy. It says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, the killed prophets of Baal, by this time tomorrow, Then Elijah was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. He runs in fear. Eventually, he ends up in a cave all by himself, alone, discouraged, dejected. And God comes to him in a still, small voice, in a gentle whisper. As Elijah laments to God, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, have thrown down your altars, have killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. The people of Israel have, in mass, forsaken God, rejected his prophets, torn down the altars. Elijah alone is left, or so he thinks. What's God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bound the knee to Baal. This is important, folks. God always preserved for himself a remnant of faithful and true followers. Always, of all the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in Israel in the days of Elijah, though they had in mass rejected God, Yahweh, as their Lord, God had preserved for himself a remnant chosen by grace. So as was true of God not rejecting his people in Elijah's day, So was true of God not rejecting his people in Paul's day. Look there, Romans 10, 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Of all the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people of Israel in the days of Paul, though they have in mass rejected Jesus, their Messiah, Yahweh as their Lord, God has preserved for himself a remnant chosen by grace. This has always been God's modus operandi, God's way of doing things. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew seven thirteen and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Why? Because Jesus is the way. Why? Because mercy is the way. Why? Because it cannot be earned. Why? Because election is by grace. So as the people in Elijah's day... And so as the people in Paul's day, so are the people in our day, right? Raising their fists to God and saying, no, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to earn my own salvation. I don't need your Jesus. I'm not going to bow my knee and call him my Lord and Savior. But beloved, what's verse 6 say? God's remnant is chosen by grace. And since it is by grace, it's not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is Paul's great theme in the book of Romans. Jesus has done it all. Salvation has never been by works, by keeping a list of rules or having the right ethnic heritage. No, salvation has always been by God's sovereign election. By his gracious choice, and then our response to that grace faith, faith, trusting alone in Christ for salvation. There's no separate way of salvation for the Jewish people back then or today. There never has been. Our focus today on the Jewish people, on the nation of Israel, as for everyone, must be Christ. And Christ alone. Our primary goal as Christians is not to help sustain a healthy nation of Israel as helpful and as good as that is. That's not our primary goal. Our goal must be for them to come to Christ. Their Messiah. Well, Paul's last proof, as per as usual here in Romans, is to quote, from the Old Testament. And to show that what is happening is what God said would happen. Yes, there's a remnant saved by grace. But that means the rest were hardened. In their rejection of grace. In the rejection of Christ. In their choice, they willfully hardened their own hearts. They failed to obtain what they were seeking. Because they were not seeking it by grace. But by their works. God's hardening comes. As they harden themselves to his grace, God gives them up to their own choices, to their own desires, to their own stubbornness. Verse 8 is a double Old Testament quote. It's a quote from Isaiah, who's quoting from Moses. You see, the law and the prophets testify together of God's sovereign grace, of God sovereignly giving them up to their own choices. Paul says that this rejection, this hardening, comes down to this day. And continues, yes, into our day. And then verse 9 intends a quote from Psalm 69. The picture is a table. A table of provision and help. A table of food and rest. A table of bounty and grace. God set the table before them. All they had to do was choose to eat. But yet they refused. The provision of grace that was offered at the table instead had become their downfall. They rejected the meal. God's gracious provision became for them a stumbling block. Their rejection of God's grace brought them God's divine retribution. What they rejected came back on them as payback. God's divine justice. God simply gave them what they wanted. And the just consequences that followed. Their response to God's grace. Opportunity after opportunity was to reject it. The table was set. And yet they refused to eat. So God simply gave them. What they wanted. How sad is that? But how real. Is that? Because that's how it works. Not just for them. That's how it works for us too. Reminds me of the. Verses that follow the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Listen as I read John 3.16-18. through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Sobering words, right? Startling, sobering words. God sent his Son in order that the world might be saved, not to condemn it. Because in Christ, what? There is therefore now no condemnation. But for those who do not believe, their condemnation is already on them by their choice. Their condemnation is, is but the just consequences of their choice. They simply receive what they choose. So it is with us. Beloved, today is the day to look at the bountiful table of God's grace set before us in Christ Jesus and partake. It is so fitting today to have the table before us of communion. John Newton, the author of the great hymn Amazing Grace, was in his early life a captain of a slave boat. After his conversion to Christ, the reality of his sin and of his Savior was ever before him, On his deathbed, he whispered to a friend, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. He wrote his own epitaph that marks his grave. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, A servant of slaves in Africa was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. John Newton is a portrait of God's grace. And he wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Oh, how God's amazing grace saved a wretch like John Newton. Oh, how God's amazing grace saved a wretch like Brian Etheridge. Oh, how God's amazing grace can save a wretch like you. As we gather now around the Lord's table and the bountiful grace of Christ is offered, if you've never put your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, now is the time. Pray. So we gather around a table, pray in your own words. A, B, C's. A, admit, admit your sin, admit you've fallen short. B, believe, believe Jesus is who He says He is. Believe He did what He did, that He died on the cross for your sin and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins. And then C, confess. Confess Him as your Savior. Confess Him as your Lord. Confess Him as the forgiver of your life. Confess Him as the leader of your life. Admit, believe, confess. And if you're a believer here today, as we gather around the table, let your heart flow anew and afresh, overflowing with gratitude of God's amazing grace, His saving grace, His sovereign grace. His election grace has come to you and given you life, abundant life, eternal life. Let's pray. God, now we come to you. We come to you in the honesty of the moment. exposing our own hearts and thoughts to the work of your spirit so that those here online or in our midst who have never made that that life decision, that exchange of their sin for your salvation would right now do that, would feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And Spirit, you would lead them to salvation. And for us, Lord, as believers, as we open up our hearts and our minds to the moving of the Spirit, Lord, convict us and challenge us with the immeasurable greatness of your grace that covered to save a wretch like us. In Jesus' name, amen.